I'm going ding. I feel like Halo on the Miami Heat. The words I speak off this sheet are like a 3D. I don't just hop on a track. I bring running cleats. I'm a player for real, more than an athlete. Let my mama tell it. Could have ran for the Senate. Instead, I penned it for Donovan Bennett. I'm cemented. This a deep dive. In your headphones of a long drive. Up close and personal, just like you courtside. There ain't no out of bounds here. No offsides. We going live in one, two, three, four, five. You are now tuned in to going deep with Donovan Bennett. Thank you, Capital. We are going deep. Talking all things Canada. Tennis Canada, Canada soccer. Canada soccer failing to capitalize. See what I did there? Capital. Capitalize on what I thought was a great opportunity. And I promised with this space I wouldn't give hot takes. But I do feel different than a lot of people today. An antithetical approach, if you will. Everyone was excited. We got our first goal. What a moment. All over the internet. Biggest moment in Canadian soccer history. Not true. Our women have had 10 moments bigger than that, including, I don't know, winning a gold medal. Christine Sinclair has more international goals than anybody walking this earth. So us scoring one in the World Cup is not bigger than that. Biggest moment in men's soccer. Kids everywhere are going to be remembering that. I don't know if that's true either. I think Davies run to keep the ball in down the right touch line, cutting in and scoring and qualifying is going to be remembered as much, if not more, than that goal. The goal was beautiful. It was a header. It wasn't an own goal, which I was afraid it was going to be. And I was just happy that we got the goal. But it changes when you were run off the pitch and gave up four goals. The broadcasters in Canada gave Davies the man of the match. Can you be the man of the match when you lose by three? I think we are at a higher level at this point. We have higher expectations for this team. I think if we're going to call ourselves a football nation, we can't just be happy with being there and showing up. And we can have an argument about tactically, did we get it wrong? Should it, Tiba Hutchinson have been playing for more than 45 minutes? Should he have been playing in the first place at the age of 39 against three Croatian midfielders when we had two in the middle of the park? And those are three... Probably the best midfielders in the tournament. We could have all those conversations about John Herdman. Did he upset an entire nation? Should he have handled himself different? Should he have been having his post-match team talk in the middle of the pitch where cameras are around? Or are you doing it because cameras are around? And this is the other side of that. All of those conversations are good and healthy and welcome. That's what it means to care. That's what it means to be at another level. In fact, I think it's disrespectful if we just say, well, you tried hard. Well, we got a goal. Great. What are we going to do? Give participation ribbons and orange slices and give the boys stickers when they come off the pitch? If this was hockey or many other sports, quite frankly, the conversation would be entirely different. We're at that level. And, And I'm grading on a curve. When you show me a standard, I expect it to be met. Canada was by far and away the best team in CONCACAF in qualifying. But yet at the World Cup, their performance has been the worst. Not in comparison to their group, which was made more difficult because they're a pot four team. They lost two of their last three matches in the lead up of the tournament and thus are in a very difficult group. But in comparison to what USA has done or Mexico or Costa Rica, 
they have been bad. There's some small minnow nations, whether it's the African nations that have scored goals and won games and got results. They might not get past the group, but they've had a better showing. I think all of this debate is healthy because I think when we host in four years, the standard thus should be higher, which is why against Morocco, I want to see all the kids. I want to see everyone on this roster, 27 and younger, who could factor in playing in the future because I think winning things is the standard. Standard that Tennis Canada has met. I want winners, Joe. That's what I want. That's what we should want. We should all want winners. I want winners. Thank you, Mike Singletary. So give this team a letter grade for you. Because for me, it's a C plus, like satisfactory at best. Maybe it, it moves up if you beat Morocco. I will hold judgment until maybe 2026 when we can put some of these lessons into practice, then the letter grade might go up retroactively. But I'm Shania Twain right now. That don't impress me much. I think for me, yeah, maybe like a B minus is the most generous I'm willing to go after the first couple of games. I want show in homeroom. (laughs) B minus. I I think, I I do think it will, it could change after, depending on what happens in Morocco. I I definitely am so proud of like A for effort, but like D for execution, (laughs) I guess, at the end of everything. I, uh, yeah, like the goal from Alfonso Davies was fantastic. Like it was great to watch. It was, it was great television, the, the pass, all the various replays. It was absolutely fantastic. Buchanan being involved with that pass. It was great. No complaints for me. And then you get waxed. You get absolutely waxed by Croatia. And I don't know if that, I, I suppose in the end, that speaks more to perhaps how how not great Belgium is in the end versus how, how much better Croatia is. And Croatia showed that they were better. I don't think they necessarily needed any post-game comments from John Herdman after game one to get themselves up because they were in the World Cup final just four years ago. But yeah, I think like for Team Canada... I, I'm very pleased. We no longer have to talk about who will score the first goal, but the uh, it, I'm not even sure it's really boils down to lack of effort against Croatia. I think Croatia is just that much of a better team and they got, they got outplayed and that's, that's something that happens sometimes. But uh, yeah, in terms of curving a grading on a, on a letter grade here, I, I got to say at best a B minus and you're probably right. Maybe I'm being a little too generous. I don't think it was lack of effort. I think you can be proud of the effort. And I want to be clear. I think you, be proud of the team. I, I just think they would be the first to tell you they expected more. They packed to get to the round of 16. They had a higher standard. And so if they're gutted, we should be gutted as well. I, I do think that part of the heightened expectations where you played so well against Belgium and Belgium was the second ranked team in the world and FIFA rankings are like cryptocurrency. Like, they exist, and they're there, but no one really understands them. They don't really make sense. When people try to explain crypto to me, it's like they're banging symbols in my eardrum. Like, I have no idea what they're talking about. We know Belgium isn't the second best team in this tournament or, quite frankly, in the world. Now, Croatia, who's recently uh, been to a final, you can make an argument that they are much closer to that level, and we saw that level. 13 shots, 10 of them on goal, so clinical, when you look at this team and how they set up, they've had one clean sheet in their last seven games. It's been 1,108 days, 37 matches since the last time they conceded three-plus goals. This is the first time John Herdman has had consecutive losses since he's taken over the men's national team. 
yes, we are no longer one of those few countries like Trinidad and Tobago who has not scored at a World Cup, but I don't think that was the only goal. Still a lot to play for, though. The game in Morocco will not have us advance, but I think will have us feeling much better if they put in a great effort like Tennis Canada because like Mike Singletary, I want winners. I want people who want to win. And that's exactly what Tennis Canada did in the Davis Cup. 16th country ever to win the Davis Cup. Remarkable that 10 minutes apart, we win the Davis Cup. Alfonso Davies scores the first goal for this country. What a moment it was to be a sports fan in this country. And the commentators need to, the British one, say his name properly. It's Davies, not Davis. I don't know why they think the E is silent. But in terms of the Davis Cup, a, a competition that's been around for over 100 years, and we finally have won it. We've been to a final before. We've lost to Spain, led by Rafa Nadal. But to beat Australia, a nation that's won it 28 times, to do it in a way where Felix has now won 19 of his last 22 matches, Chapo, who's been down, bounces back with a 89-minute victory. And to see Felix celebrate with his father, see him lying on the court and the rest of the team rush him, it was amazing. But I want to put it in context because I can't help but juxtapose those scenes and how unlikely they were for Tennis Canada in the scenes of rabid Canadian soccer fans at the soccer house in Qatar, which apparently cost $249 to get into. Imagine paying to fly to Qatar just to pay another $240 to watch the team on a screen. The people in bars across this country, this has all happened really quickly. I want to figure out why. So the guy who always has the answer for all my questions, Arash Madani, who's covered both teams closely so can provide us the perspective that we need. Listen and learn as we go deep with Arash Madani. Arash, thank you for joining. And off the top of the show, I tried to put in context these two credible accomplishments for Canadians in sports that weren't deemed not that long ago very Canadian. What is more unlikely for you? us winning a Davis Cup title, or our men being in the World Cup, scoring a goal in the group stage? I mean, you have to say it's winning the World Championship over scoring a goal. And I understand getting the World Cup is an amazing feat, and they haven't done it since 1986 and the rest. But DJ, let's just put into context what tennis is. There are 138 countries in the world that take part in Davis Cup. Canada has become the 16th to ever win it in like 120 plus years of this competition going. And as dark as some of the days were with Canada soccer, and there have been on the men's side for quite some time, it wasn't that different for all of tennis in Canada. I mean, if you, if you think before the year... 2010, who is Canada's most celebrated tennis player or players? Helen Kelsey, Daniel Nestor, I guess Andrew Schneider. Uh, you know, a, a third round appearance at a Grand Slam felt like scoring a goal at the World Cup. So to go into the Davis Cup, this global competition, to for it to be a team event, which means you need to have some depth. 
and for a 22- and a 23-year-old to lead the charge in singles and to have Vashik Pospisil, Mr. Davis Cup, Captain Canada, all those, you know, things, and to do it and to lift it around 10 years after their true journey started, I think it's one of the great stories in Canadian sports history. I love the comp between the high levels of the sport. Because I, because I'm weird, I go through and I think of our Canadian athletes and I think, who's the most marketable? If I was a Fortune 500 company, who would I want to attach myself to? And I think by default, people assume it's just, well, who are the great Canadian hockey players at the time? But I think many people would say, well, Alfonso Davies. Clearly, he should be in that mm-hmm. conversation. And although he's great, and although he's one of the best left backs in the world, Felix is the second or the sixth best tennis player in the world, and that's as an ascending number, not not going down. Do you think he is a sleeping giant in terms of us not understanding what a heater he's on right now? I mean, he's won three titles in the last couple of months. Look how the year began. Canada won the ATP Cup, which is a team event just before the Australian Open, and now he bookends it with this. And yeah, top six in the world. Here's the thing. If you think about the great athletes, great Canadian athletes in all of sport around the world, from, I don't know who it is in hockey right now, is it McDavid or McKinnon and Mary-Philippe Poulain? and Alfonso Davies and Christine Sinclair, and on and on we can go. I don't think there's an athlete today whose ceiling is higher than O.J. Aliasim's. He is 22 years old. 22. He is bilingual. He understands the ways of the world. He... He is a black man who wants to represent his country and says competing in the Olympics is one of the highest honors in sport. He is on a trajectory right now where outside of Novak Djokovic, there is not a player. And you can say Carlos Alcaraz, you're right there in the conversation, but Felix is there with him too. And he's really just getting started. Like he is beginning to hit his prime and there's so much more growth that's available to him. Like, no Canadian man has ever won a major, has ever won a Grand Slam. And if you and I were, if Felix stays healthy, honestly, Donovan, I would set his number of career slams won at around four and a half. That's, that's how much I believe this guy can, can just ascend in the world of tennis. A woman has won a major in terms of Canadian. Obviously, you know, Bianca Andreescu mm-hmm. smashed that door open. Leila Fernandez reached a final. I don't think it's unfathomable in the sh- short-term future for us to, as Canadians, start to expect on both the men's and women's side of the draw that we see a Canadian in the final out of major. Is that fair to say? Uh, not yet. Not yet. Um, I know where you're going with this. And it's close. I just want to remind everybody that Felix is 22 and Dennis is 23. And there's still Alcaraz and there's still Djokovic and there's still Kyrgios and there's still Kaspar Ruud who's been to two finals. It's getting close. It's getting close. We're not quite there. Uh, 
and in large part because I think the parity is crazy and because the margin for error now in tennis is really four or five points in a match is a couple of minutes in a match. Um, there's going to come a time where that's the case. I just don't think 2022 or 2023 is quite there yet. You mentioned him, so let's talk Shapovalov. Last, lost two matches earlier in the week, bounces back, wins in 89 minutes. There was a time when some thought like he was ascending a bit faster than Felix was. How far away is he from being someone who has the level of consistency that we've seen from Felix over the last couple months? Good question, man. I don't know. Uh, Chapeau is so up and down. It's so hard to know what to expect from him. If you look at the two, three months coming into the summer hardcourt season, he was he was a mess. And then he turned it on a little bit in New York, turned it on a little bit in the fall. Uh, Chapeau Valov has flashes where you say, oh, man, this is what he can be. And then he just disappears for a little while. His coaching situation is not really kind of... It, it seems murky. That's the best way to kind of put it. He'd been working with Peter Polanski for a little while. Um, you know, but when, when he's playing at a high level, he is quarterfinal, semifinal of slam caliber. And it's wild, you know. You talk about all of this stuff. He's he's 18 in the world. <laughs> um in, in at any other time in Canadian tennis, that would be you know the greatest achievement ever. But Chapo has shown us at times what he's capable of, and it's great. And then he'll just kind of vanish off the landscape for a little bit, and you're like, man, what what's happening here? This guy hasn't had a result in so long. So it it seems like he's finding a stride, getting to the finals in Vienna, big moment. Got to the semis in Tokyo, on his way. Got to the finals in Seoul after the U.S. Open. You're saying. There's something there. But just as he's going, you know, you look back, DJ, at the summer, and I think, spring and summer, I guess, I think it was something like from the middle of May until mid-August, he won one match. So it's it's Jekyll and Hyde with Chapeau. And once he's not going to be a, a real threat until there's some more consistency in his game. I was watching... Red confetti fall and the celebrations. And I couldn't help but think about Milos. And he sent a really classy tweet supporting the boys. But as you mentioned, given you know Felix and Dennis's age, so much of it is about timing and windows. And there was a period where Milos was arguably the fourth or fifth best player in the world in the top three. Third at one point. Well, yeah. Third, right. But, but the, the, the top other guys happened to be you know, the best players of all time, arguably, right? Yeah. And, and so I, I, I wonder how he felt in that moment watching that, thinking, man, I, I could have used the support and this depth uh, earlier, or was I just cursed on when I was born? What is his legacy and relationship to how far the sport has come in the country? Well, to me, Milos is the OG, to me, without Milos, a lot of this doesn't happen. Milos was the trailblazer. Milos was the pioneer. Milos was the start of all of this. Let's remember, first of all, this is a dude who's gotten to a Wimbledon final, been to a few Grand Slam semifinals. And as brutal as the era in which he came up was, 
when maybe the toughest part of all for him is that his body betrayed him at the worst times with injury. It was a groin, it was an Achilles, it was a knee, it was, you know, head and shoulders, knees and toes with him. But Milos paved the way. Tennis Canada, when you go back 12, 13, 14 years, started a brand new program. They hired Louis Borfiga from the French Tennis Federation. They started a high-performance program, and Milos was one of the first alum of it. Moved to Montreal, had a billet, uh, you know, did schooling at the facility at the National Tennis Center, did his tennis there in Montreal, and kind of he was the first flower that came into bloom. And it was the Felixes and the Dennises who watched Milos and said, okay, he he's doing this, I can do this too. And it was Milos that put Canadian tennis on the map first, and then came Jeannie Bouchard after. It was Milos who really got the Davis Cup team going. And in 2013, Donovan, I mean, it's a completely different format now, but Canada got to the semifinals of Davis Cup and had to go to Belgrade. And we were there in Serbia, and Novak Djokovic won the U.S. Open on a Sunday, had media obligations and an event on Monday and Tuesday, flew Wednesday, showed up to the draw Thursday, and played Friday. That's how much it means to the people of Serbia. That's how much it means to Novak. And Canada went toe-to-toe with them, and in the end, it was Novak that was triumphant. But I really believe this. Without Milos, a lot of this doesn't happen. And when you walk around the weight room at Tennis Canada, when you walk around the facility at Tennis Canada, his photo at Wimbledon, his photo, you know, as as the emblematic image of this is possible, exists. And I think he's the one who made a lot of people with the Federation, with the players, with the entire tennis community in Canada realize it is ha- it is possible for a Canadian to do this. This can happen. And he was one of the uh he was one of the first to really show it. And I've always been intrigued whether it's Tennis Canada or, you know, the CSA in terms of soccer and our growth. How much of it is the actual infrastructure and institution or how much of it is the individuals doing it despite the infrastructure and institution. You, tennis, you have players training in Florida and Arizona and California, all over the place. It, are we seeing something because of what Tennis Canada has done or because of the actual individual work of the players and their staff? On the tennis side, I think it's both. On the soccer side, I think it's completely different. But, you know, Felix... Felix gives so much of his time and so much of his credit to the infrastructure and the system that existed at Tennis Canada in Montreal that 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 was his home base. Milos does a little bit of that too. Dennis really worked with his mom. He was he was in a different situation. Layla was in a different situation. So I think for each player it's a little different, but the system and infrastructure over at Tennis Canada to me is one of the best not just among amateur sport organizations in Canada. I think it's one of the best development programs for tennis in the world when you look at the different countries out there and how they go about it. One of the reasons why I am enjoying this run personally for Tennis Canada and 
you know, what our, our men and women are doing on the soccer side is because I'm seeing so many names with a bunch of vowels in them. I'm seeing so many players with yeah. melanin in their skin like me and you. I'm seeing lots of people like me and many of our listeners whose families came here from elsewhere um, for a better life. and Without a silver that. spoon in their mouth. Correct, correct. Um, but, but that's me. That's the common denominator that I look at. Um, how do you, how do you uh, view this level of success? And I think it's a great question. It's a great point. And look, what, what's tennis known as? Tennis is known as a country club sport for the elite. Okay? I mean, I could tell you each of their stories, but you have Milos's family that emigrated from Montenegro. And dad was an engineer and mom mom worked too. And he just happened to get into the sport because there was a flyer that came into the mailbox of their house that said, hey, March break tennis camp. And that's how it all started. They they didn't come from overwhelming wealth, nor did Felix's parents. I mean, Dennis's mom, <laughs> Dennis's mom from Russia was a tennis player who moved to Tel Aviv because her coach is from Israel. And while they were in Tel Aviv, she got pregnant and they had Dennis and Dennis has a sibling. And they were looking for a better life for both of the kids, and they applied for, you know, to emigrate to Australia and Canada, and Canada was the country that came back first, and that's how they landed here. There wasn't a ton of money there. Bianca's parents came over with just a couple of suitcases when they came over from Romania. And on and on it goes. So yes, yes, in the, you know, in the day-to-day -day recreation club world, country club world, that's, that's what tennis is. What makes this remarkable is that these kids grew up not with privilege, but with, yes, some God-given talent, but more a hunger and a belief and a want to to get to this point. Vashik Pospisil, let's not forget about him, 32 years old, has always answered the call for Davis Cup for Canada, always. His dad was a tennis coach. DJ, they grew up in Vernon, B.C., Okay, they played on concrete public courts with weeds coming out of the cracks in the public courts. <laughs> Vashik ends up in a winning a Grand Slam doubles title at Wimbledon, has been to a singles quarterfinal, and again, front and center on, that, on this Davis Cup team lifting the trophy. So when you think about these journeys, that's why the infrastructure of the National Tennis Federation is so important, because they have been able to provide you know, resources and a structure and coaching and the rest, but also it's about these kids and these families getting it done. As I transition to football, or as we call it in North America, soccer, give a letter grade. And obviously the result for the third game against Morocco will change this. But based on what you've seen thus far, if you give a letter grade to this experience for Canada, it would be what? Because a lot of people are saying, man, we scored a goal. I'm happy with that. And I don't know. Getting a goal but being run off the pitch, to me, is not something worth celebrating. I think you've been yeah, I'm with you. past that. What is your takeaway and your feeling uh, right now after two matches and, and being knocked out second to Qatar? I mean, this sounds harsh, and not to beat them when they're down, but they are professional athletes. Let's remember that. To me, it's a D. <laughs> I was gonna Honestly. Say, I was going to say C+. Plus, but yeah, D. Oh, they scored a goal. Yes, they did it. 
And it was an incredible goal. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the Davies run was just <sighs> remarkable. Um, and yes, they were the better team through 43 minutes against Belgium, the first 43, and then Belgium scores in the 44th minute. Um, here's why the letter grade is so low. It's it's all the stuff that's accompanied it, too. It's showing up late to two press conferences. It's it's the whole Herdman stuff with the F and the front page of the paper and what the Croatians have said. It's one thing to look out of place on the pitch. And for much of yesterday against Croatia, they were. But all of the rest, all of the rest, you know, when the when the head coach of Croatia's national team after the match says, you know, I was basically looking for John to shake his hand and I couldn't find him. You know, what was the what was his line, DJ? Something like he's a good coach, he's a professional, but he has some things to learn. Yes. I think that extends to the entire national team program, to the entire federation. There's a lot to learn for everybody. And they had a lot of time to try and learn it. They had a lot of time to listen. They had a lot of time to, to go about it and didn't. Um, I'm not worried about 2026. I think worry is a little too harsh. But there's a lot of growing up to do off the pitch if we're going to host the world again. And on the pitch, you know, we can question some of the tactics, we can question some of the substitutions, we can question whatever we want to do. But through 100 and almost 200 minutes on the pitch, uh, yeah, they scored the goal, but they could and should have been better, and they weren't. Well, And I think a lot of people either think being harsh is un-Canadian or we deserve a warm hug and a participation Ribbon, but if you're a football nation, that comes with scrutiny, and that comes with real conversations. If if this was a international hockey tournament, certainly we wouldn't be patting ourselves on the back for just showing up and and trying hard. And so I I do think actually we were taught a lesson to your point multiple ways. Lastly, before I leave you, Madani, because I love to pick your brain because you're much smarter than I. What is I the really overall? Not. You oh you certainly are. What, what is the what is the overall lesson or takeaway from this tournament in terms of when we're having it, where we're having it, why we're having it there, and how some have chosen or opted out of using it as a platform to speak about things that are supposedly bigger than football? But you can't. You cannot do that. There, There is none of that. The takeaway is... FIFA cares more about dollars than anything else, than growing the game, than human rights, than having anybody have a voice or a platform. You can't wear an armband as a fan. You can't wear a T-shirt. You can't bring in a sign You can, you know that, that says anything. You, you had a Canadian player get into the World Cup, and his mother posted something of her just overwhelmed with joy seeing her son run out on the pitch and FIFA's spies had that taken down on Twitter because that was a bigger priority to them than human rights than to effectively a genocide that's gone on to build this build the stadiums at the World Cup 
and that it was it was it was more important to them that a quarter trillion dollars gets spent to have new stadiums built than with the world watching to really showcase and have an opportunity to highlight some of the wrongdoings happening in the world, like Iran right now. So that's the takeaway. FIFA doesn't care about anything but money. Full stop. Think about that. Let that sink in. A mother so proud that her son has reached the stage. Quite frankly, that's an advertisement for the tournament. But Mm -hmm. Mama Atakube is not a rights holder. Better take that down. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah, pretty sad, pretty shocking. But here we are. Thank no, I, I'd say it's sad. I wouldn't say it's shocking one bit. They, they, <laughs> they are who we thought they were. Yes. And you know what? And but- you know what, Donovan? We all <laughs> let them off the hook again. <laughs> Thank you, Denny Green. But I thought maybe for three and a half weeks they would be on their best behavior. While nope. the world was watching. And then they would nope. revert back to who they, they don't are. care. They do not. You certainly do, buddy. Uh, you do in your work all the time. Thank you for caring enough to spend a little time with us. You got it, brother. Always good to catch up. Arash is right. We all knew. And we let them off the hook because we always knew this was about money. This is how the tournament got to Cutter in the first place. Before we take a break... Here's a refresher on the corruption that brought the World Cup to Qatar. The winner to organize the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. Every time I see that clip, I still can't believe he read that name on that card. Qatar? Seriously? We're talking about a country with no soccer tradition that is smaller than the province of Nova Scotia. So how'd they get the World Cup, you ask? The Sunday Times alleges widespread corruption in the bidding process where voters were bribed. The last two World Cup hosts, Russia and Qatar, are both openly corrupt but have deep pockets because of substantial oil and gas deposits but are ruled by authoritarian regimes that leave no room for dissent. But unlike Qatar, Russia had the capacity to host. To put the 2022 World Cup on, eight new stadiums were needed, including one in a city that didn't yet exist. Qatar only has 300,000 citizens, yet 1.2 to 2 million fans are slated to come to Qatar for the World Cup. What's the consequence? Well, when a nation state is awarded the tournament corruptly in a nation without infrastructure to host it, migrant workers akin to modern day slavery are put to work to make it happen. It all had to be done quickly, Only problem is the temperature is 120 plus degrees in the summer, precisely why the games were moved off schedule to the winter to protect the health of the players. But nobody cared that the workers still have to work through the summer to get the stadiums ready to play in the winter. The tournament is being built on the backs of 1.6 million migrant workers. 60% of Qatar's total population are laborers, most from South Asia and increasingly from Africa, Some of the world's poorest people are working the lowest level jobs to ensure the World Cup can be hosted in the world's richest country. In 2021, The Guardian reported more than 6,500 people died in the decades since the Qatar World Cup was announced just from Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and India alone. The numbers don't lie. The comparison to slavery isn't made lightly, 
If you're a worker, your rights are negligible because your freedom of movement is tied to your employer. Contracts aren't kept, you're paid what they choose, and your employer takes your passport and prevents you from switching jobs. If you try to leave the country, that's considered breaking the law. Sounds like slavery to me. In 2010, World Cups were awarded by FIFA in unacceptable ways with unacceptable consequences. There is no room for employers who do not secure the freedom and safety of World Cup workers. FIFA, all of us, must take all necessary measures to really implement change. What's the end game? The real housewives of Dubai, seriously. Their Middle East neighbors in Dubai have laundered their reputation to such a degree that the lifestyles of the rich and famous from the Western world are opting to bring their money there so often it has become reality TV. Qatar wants to be the new Dubai, and this is their coming out party. Hosting the World Cup gives Qatar a reason to spend money on infrastructure they need, stadiums, hotels, subways, to be a travel hotspot and a Fortune 500 business partner. This was already happening in Qatar as the capital city Doha was being built as a modern metropolis. But over the last 12 years, it's happened at an accelerated pace in preparation for the World Cup. Qatar is the smallest country to ever host the World Cup. Yet the spend was $220 billion, 15 times more than the next expensive World Cup. The fact is, there is a real human cost to the most expensive World Cup ever. This concept isn't new. The most recent sports washing example is Live Golf, but it dates back all the way to Hitler's Germany hosting the 1936 Olympic Games. So in summary, Qatar is a regime where workers' rights are limited and many poor men died to make a few men rich during this tournament. FIFA is akin to an international crime syndicate and soccer is a mirror to the world. This doesn't mean you can't love this tournament as there is nothing wrong about being so passionate about the country of your birth or ancestry so much you want them to do well on the world stage playing the world's game, but it does mean that you can hate the fact that people died to deliver this tournament to the world and it happened for over a decade while the rest of the world sat back and watched. Final word to Jurgen Klopp. You are all journalists. You have, should have sent a message who didn't write the most critical article about it and not about because it's Qatar and things. No, about the circumstances, which was clear. The process was not right. A lot of people took money um, for the wrong reason. We all let it happen. My name is Lucille Bryan. I'm Clifton Bryan. My grandson is a show. And I'm so happy that you're listening to Gordy with Donovan Bennett. I'm so glad that you had the show. Thank you. Operative word is happy. I am so happy whenever I get to talk to you and link up to our next guest because he just makes you happy. He is like a taller version of Pinball Clemens. And I guarantee when Alfonso Davies scored his goal and the BBC commentator was like, Alfonso Davies, because they always crush his name. With a header to remember. <laughs> Young Cabral Richards had a celebration of his own to remember. What's up, Cap? You were where, when, and doing what when Alfonso Davies scored <laughs> the header to remember. Well, thank you for the generous words off the top. I was at, at my home in Calgary, and I was just swearing a lot. <laughs> and I have a four-month-old child who was just getting a, a deluge of F-bombs. Let's bl LFGs. There were a ton of L like 
a solid three or four LFGs. And it was early, too, like 68 seconds in. I was barely awake. But then, you know, I had to jump around a little bit. And and then, uh, was it, Cranbridge almost scored. There was an offside. No, we almost scored again. But there was an offside with, I think, it was Jonathan David. But it was it was exciting, that first that first half. And then, you know, our uh, the steam, we kind of ran out of steam. And, and our hopes and dreams had kind of faded with that 4-1 result. I love that we have now, like, a visual to who you are when you're excited. You become the angry celebrator with the no, swearing. no, no. I'm ha- I'm happy. I'm happy, dude. Just, yeah, I jump around. You, you I scream and gave us expletives. Yeah, enjoy. You don't swear when you celebrate. I, I mean, I don't swear. Well, you don't period. swear anyway. But okay, I I, 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 I actually when, when it comes to soccer, I become British when I celebrate. Like, who are you? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and I've seen Jet that before in. too. <laughs> yeah, which is not a good look. But wait, but like wait, you wait, you you processed my my celebration as anger saying LFG? Yeah. Yeah. We haven't we haven't watched enough games together then, I guess my G. Well, maybe angry is not the word. Maybe like demonstrative is Oh yeah. Is the word. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I was better. like if if I was at a bar, I might have like started breaking stuff. <laughs> like I and I and I get your house of pain jump around on. Oh yeah. Unfortunately, I haven't watched uh, any soccer at a bar here in Calgary. The matches are just so early. Like, the next one against Morocco was, like, 8 a.m. on Thursday. Like, I'm, I'm not getting up. My, my, my soccer fandom it, um, isn't strong enough to pull me from my bed at, uh, you know, 7.30, brush my teeth, and then get over to, you know, National on 10th to watch, uh, to watch Canada-Morocco. So I haven't been able to absorb like this city's appetite and excitement for soccer, but I can imagine it's similar to the rest of the, uh, the rest of the city or excuse me, the country, huge celebration, like right out the gate. And then, you know, disappointment by the end of the end of the match. Well, how similar or dissimilar is it? Because as you know, in Toronto, you're generally cheering for the nation of your birth or your parents' birth. And it's still the case now People are keeping some energy for Canada, but you're still seeing a lot of flags from elsewhere. Is it like that in Calgary? There was a guy at a bar who was going back and forth between a Croatia and Canada jersey while in Canada. What is that like in in Calgary? Well, you know, that I understand. And there are people from different, you know, uh, ethnic heritages that, that create the tapestry of Canada. So I imagine that happens here too. Actually, my... My cousin, my my wife's sister's husband, is Croatian, and uh, and I know he was he was celebrating. It was like it's bittersweet, but I I imagine he was rocking a, a Croatia jersey. I have I have to check with him actually. Uh, shout out to to Marty, um, but I I unfortunately don't have a sense. Like I'm in the prairie, so hockey culture is so rich here. This is where the CFL, like the spirit of the CFL, lives in in the prairies. And I, I was like you in Toronto when the Raptors went on the run. So I didn't, I didn't get a sense of the, I, I mean, we have friends who live out here that are diehard, you know, salute to my guy, uh, Dave Wilder, who's a diehard and Eddie who are diehard Lakers fans and, and Kobe fans. But I don't, I, you know, I was there with you in the euphoria. Actually, we were in Colombia for part of it. I don't know if people know that, but uh, you know that whole run to to beating Golden State in 2019. We only got the Toronto perspective because we were in the city. So, 
Um, I imagine there there's a lot of enthusiasm out here for for soccer. I just me personally haven't seen it. Shout out to the word tapestry and shout out to the word euphoria, which is a great show and also something that Cab says in casual conversation. A letter grade for the team in this tournament after two games from you is what? Because I was honest with our listeners. I love the fact that we scored. I feel a different way about it, speaking of bittersweet, when we got dealt with and lost by three goals. Give the side a letter grade. You know, like my marks at Ryerson, formerly Ryerson University, now TMU, see a C minus. Okay. And if we if we draw, actually if we score against Morocco, then that could be bumped up to a C. I mean it was it was like Alfonso Davies scoring in sixty eight seconds was just it was it was incredible. It was magical. And like, you know, the the narrative from the game before, people, you know, criticizing Herdman for putting Davies or letting Davies kick the um, kicked that penalty kick and he missed and Jonathan David who had more experience he should have done all that kind of stuff it was like it was great it was almost vindication for Alfonso Davies but um, man we got effed we got effed. like <laughs> we they, they kicked us in our in our, our tiny Canadian flag <laughs> our tiny maple leaf um, so great it, like a you know I believe as a rash said earlier 43 minutes uh, it was wonderful against against Belgium and then yesterday Man, yeah, C, C plus is my C plus is my grade. Croatia's I, a great team, though, man. Like, even though people are like, oh, Belgium, Croatia, old, they didn't look that old. No. Like, four one, like that's they dealt with us, man. And 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 salute to uh, was it um, Perisic? Yeah, I mean that dude is dominated the left side. He did, and uh, uh, Kramaric, who scored a couple goals. Like, uh, you know, I know we 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 aren't afraid to give flowers when they're when they're due or or salutations when they're due so salute to croatia they really gave it to us salute to everybody's favorite segment dad jury (laughs) (laughs) all rise dad jury is in session so this is what i need to know from you cab as we end the show sometimes my son who you've met uh, will do things that he's not supposed to do and I get upset. Sometimes he'll do things he's not supposed to do and I'll laugh because I rate the ingenuity. For example, he's not supposed to get out of his crib. Not only did he jump out of his crib in the middle of the night, he threw the pillow out so he'd had a landing pad. And I was like, oh. this is smart, but you're not listening. Also, I've told him, you can't eat or drink on the couch. It has to be on a surface in case you spill. So he's figured out how to move the end tables right up against the couch so that technically he's following the rule, even though he's not following the spirit of the rule. Should I rate his ability to find a way? Or should I say, if you can't hear, go on, feel. Like, you have to listen to me. <laughs> well, we're not allowed to do that no, anymore. No, we're not. We're certainly not. <laughs> you mean, those, uh, those punishments that we endured in, in the 80s uh, have to remain in the 80s. But uh, much like you... Shout out to uh, Desi Bennett, who is a critical thinker. <laughs> so I, I rate the ingenuity to throwing out the, the pillow. I don't know what he's watching on YouTube or, or, or Disney Plus or whatever, but uh, those problem-solving skills, uh, you, gotta, you have to tap into those. So I, I rate it. And I, it's obviously, I guess in the moment, you have to discipline him and you take things away or just like 
remind him that he's not allowed to do that. But in the car, that's a that's a fist bump. Or like going back upstairs when you're talking to your wife, that's like a small fist bump. Like my my son has got he's got some smarts. Well, I have to refrain from laughing or smiling because then both me and Desi Bennett will be in trouble from my wife. Whatever he's watching on Disney. It's actually from Uncle Cab because I am using your account. That is how good of a friend you are. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for joining once again. This has been fun, my brother. My pleasure, man. My pleasure. Anytime. And thank you for listening. This has been another edition of Going Deep. Talk to you next time. We'll be right back.